John Farrow had one of the most colorful and interesting backgrounds of any filmmaker of his time. He ran away to sea. He claimed to have fought in various revolutions. He eventually wound up in Los Angeles in the late 1920s and started writing for silent movies and then, of course, graduated to directing. My grandfather, John Farrow, was Australian. It sounds like the kind of biography that was sort of concocted by studio publicity machines, but I guess it has a kind of a, a print-the-legend quality. A womanizer, philandra, prolific writer and filmmaker who made it to the top in uh, The Dream Factory. We're talking about the director John Farrow. Made 50 movies. Directed the likes of uh, Robert Mitchum, one of my all-time favourites, Arva Gardner, John Wayne and Betty Davis. But these days, the scoundrel from Marrick film seems to have faded from history, something my next guests are keen to correct. Joining me in our Sydney studio are directors and producers Claude Gonzalez and Franz Vandenberg, who've made a film about him. It's called John Farrow, Hollywood's Man in the Shadows, and it's going on screen at the Canberra Film Festival this weekend alongside a, a major retrospective of his work. Gentlemen, welcome to the Little Wireless Programme. Uh, Franz, I'm starting with you. How did you get interested in Pharaoh? We'd, um, Claude and I had met in 2004. I was editing a film for him. We discovered that we both liked films from the classic Hollywood period, uh, particularly the studio system and particularly film noir. We'd seen a film called The Big Clock. Both of us liked the film but had no idea that the director was Australian. And this whetted our, episode, our appetites because he was a man who seemed to be no one knew anything about and we'd never heard from about him before considering we both were interested in this type of film. And it was like, how the hell did this guy get there? And so we just sort of fell in love with the story and pursued him. I should point out that the both of you are extremely well credentialed and your collective credits Virgil the Awesome. Now, he had a, an extraordinary life, which you map out in the film, and I'd like you to take us through. Tell us about his early life in Marrickville, a storyteller from a young age, was he not? Yes, he was incredible, uh, a bit of a scoundrel as a kid because he came up through Marrickville but always was recreating something about himself, a, a fabulous from a young age. He was someone who would become become more and more entranced with telling stories to the point when the flu epidemic hit Sydney in 1919. Young Farrow was caught playing a doctor uh, with stethoscope and everything and guiding patients to health. And this is a bit of a scandal in the family and in, in New South Wales. And it was uh, asked of him to maybe remove himself from these shores. And he left Australia at a young age, 15 or so, and travel the seven seas. I mean, he's an incredible, uh, dynamic, almost adventurous heart. Well, he claims he sailed all over the Pacific and fought in revolts in Nicaragua and Mexico. Any truth in that? Um, he certainly uh, was a storyteller. We haven't been able to find out about the revolutions, but he did 
certainly uh, spend a couple of years um, sailing the South Seas as a merchant marine, uh, merchant seaman. He lived in Tahiti for about two years where he did develop the skills to become a writer. I mean, as Claude said, he did leave here at 15 and a half. I hadn't realised that he also, uh, well, was close to one of my all-time heroes, probably the founding father of the documentary in uh, Robert J. Flaherty. That's right. He did spend some time with him. They ran across each other in one of their um, voyages in the South Seas. He worked with him. And again, he just seemed to assume all these different roles and uh, did them really well. What did he tell people about his background? I imagine he was lumbered with an Australian accent. I think at the time he was... He hid it slightly. People thought he was English. He, later on in Hollywood, people thought he was English and part of the emigre set there. But also it wasn't a time where people announced that they were from Australia. We, we, we sort of find that he also told people he was related to the kings and queens of England. So he loved to tell and create a lure about himself. He, he changed his name from Jack Farrow, he was born Jack Farrow, to John Farrow, John Villiers Farrow, always giving himself airs and a position in life to move forward. He was, again, a very dynamic, charismatic personality and, and in a way that a storyteller made good in Hollywood because that's the place of great stories. Now, having jumped ship in San Francisco, he's later arrested for being an illegal alien and making a false statement claiming to be Romanian. Yes, well, the Romanian thing was hap happened to him when he was down in Los Angeles. He did uh, jump ship in San Francisco. He was about 18. He stayed there not long. Um, he managed to cause quite a bit of a stir there with the local ladies. He also um, is reported to have gone along to see Hamlet one evening. And um, unfortunately for the audience, the manager came out and said the leading actor is ill um, what should we do? And John apparently jumped up and said, I, I know that play very well. And they said, should we give him a go? And he went back and had a go. <laughs> and he came out and he apparently did the play from memory. And in the audience that evening, again, good luck played into his role, his life. Um, John Huston was in the audience and My was God. completely <laughs> transfixed by this weird Australian doing Hamlet. They became firm <laughs> friends and he suggested you've got to go down to Hollywood because they need writers. By that stage, John had written. And so in the mid-20s, he arrived in um, Hollywood to write and had his first credit by 1927. Now, I'm much older than either of you blokes, but I never missed a Saturday matinee at Oits. Live for them. And best of all would be a Tarzan movie. And for me, there was only one real Tarzan. And that was the chest-thumping Johnny Weismuller. Imagine my astonishment when I learned from you blokes that he married Jane. He married Maureen O'Sullivan. That's right. They, they met and fell in love on the set of one of the Tarzan films. Jane, or oh, Maureen, was uh, first started in 1932 in that great uh, 
Tarzan film. But they met because Farrow was employed to do a new Tarzan film called Tarzan Escapes. And there he met her and wooed her and they became a couple. She was a Catholic Irish girl and when they married in 1936 he converted from, to Catholicism. And so it was a, a magical romance, a Hollywood romance with one of Hollywood's leading ladies. They then uh, had children, seven children, one of them most famously, Mia Farrow, and they lived the life of Hollywood royalty in a way. But he took his Catholicism very seriously, not only in having lots and lots of children, but having a rather large crucifix about the place. Yes, it, um, it's been reported by all his children that um, they were forced to do um, the mass every almost every day. They had a 12-foot crucifix in, the, in their living room and John just really, like a lot of converts, he really took it seriously and um, went for it much more than he needed to. A 12-foot crucifix. Mm. Was he into flagellation at all? Well, possibly, <laughs> Philip. There's no... Um, no reports of that, but there are so many other stories. There's so many amazing things. He plays Hamlet at the drop of a hat. He writes a history of the papacy. He, he wrote the... Uh, also, not only did he write a history of the papacy, but he wrote that while he was on active service in the North Atlantic, for, uh, were, uh, sailing for the Canadian... Um, Navy because he was still an illegal alien at that stage but he could join the Canadian Navy which he did. He loved the sea and his shipmates used to joke with him each night when there was a watch, change of watch, they'd say, which Pope have you killed off tonight, John? And he'd <laughs> tell them and, you know. Well, if he never made a film, his contribution to literature is consequential. He writes eight books two novels, a play, poetry three biographies and is it is this true that he received the order of St John of Jerusalem? That's correct. And he is recognised by the Pope for all his great works. He's one of the most highly decorated Catholic scholars and he was able to actually then parlay that into rec being recognised in Hollywood as a sort of tough director but also one that was very uh, pious strangely enough in a town like that and later on in life he tried many times to make Catholic subject films but he's a real... Touch of the Mel Gibsons That's right but he, he was more successful in, in the thriller aspects of... What, what was the quality of his writing like and I'm talking not talking film writing what were the novels like, what was, what was the poetry like? The poetry is very good, what we've seen of it, and other, I mean, his, um, it's been recognised by other writers, particularly poets, that he was of a high standard, um, as was his novels and his biographies. Now, it has to be said that his devotion to Catholicism uh, didn't stop his womanising. If anything, it seems to have ex exacerbated it. He was a very uh, prolific Philandra. I mean, that's the thing about Farrah. He seems to have had many, many admirers and, and attracted a lot of, was in a lot of relationships. But also he was carrying on and had a separate family outside of his own family. He had a, a, a son also named John Charles Farrow uh, with a relationship he had with a, an actress called Lily Lenorak. And so he was able to keep these things secret. He had a very secret side. Well, 
I've learned from you guys that two of his children born on the same day to different mothers. I mean, that's Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah, we discovered that when we uh, interviewed um, John Charles Farrow, his son with Maureen O'Sullivan, and we'd heard that he'd heard that there was another son and much later on it was confirmed. We met um, the, the widow of that John Charles Farrow who f- uh, really, Philip, was actually born the same in the, on the same day in Los Angeles at different hospitals and both were called John Charles. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about the films. Uh, I've mentioned a couple of the famous actors he directed, but you also uh, mentioned his move into film noir, of which the best known is The Big Clock. The Big Clock certainly is um, a masterpiece of his and also for noir. He was working at this stage for Paramount and he was pretty much um, the sort of one of the lead directors on the lot. He'd worked there since 1943. His first film there was Wake Island, which um, did him very well. He um, didn't... He was nominated for an Academy Award. He didn't win that. But actually, Philip, while he was there waiting to receive that award, he picked up um, on behalf of Australia the um, Academy Award that was awarded to Damien Parra for Kokoda Frontline, which was an unusual event. Anyway, he went on... And by the stage of 1948, he was really hitting his top gear with The Big Clock. Sad to say, I've never seen The Big Clock. I know that it starred Milan, Charles Lawton and the aforementioned Maureen O'Sullivan. But the plot sounds great. A media magnate who murders his lover and tries to pin it on one of his employees. You could sell the rights to Rupert Murdoch. It's a fantastic film. And it's also interesting that it's very modern noir. Like his other films, it had great sense of humour, great performances and a wonderfully dynamic sense of of the darker side of noir where where things would take over a man and make him live this nightmare, a nightmare crime that he had to solve. Coming back to the fact that he was such a successful womanizer, I have to ask you about his physicality. Are we talking about a marvellous looking fellow? Was he drop dead gorgeous? He was um, about six foot one. His, um, described as being very physically fit, which is, again, he's a man of, of um, opposites because uh, as a young man, he loved, uh, was mentioned he loves, he loved, really loved swimming. And you mentioned Johnny Weissmuller. They became friends through his um, relationship with Maureen. Um, and also in that time, the early 30s, he, was, he became friends with Michael Pates. I mean, also, you yes. know... Philip, and um, they, they used to spend time, Weissmuller and Farrah would swim off the coast of Malibu where John and Maureen had a, a holiday weekend house. They would swim, think nothing of swimming, miles up the coast off the, and um, what, leaving Michael Pate on the shore while he um, nursed the brandy bottle. And so after a couple of hours, both Weissmuller and Farrow swam back in and they had their brandy and with no... <laughs> With no um, doubt of Farrah's uh, prowess. You're reminding me of so many people whose uh, performances or life I have thoroughly enjoyed. Michael Pate, I knew a little. Never met Johnny Wiesmiller or indeed Cheetah. But, uh, boy, he was a busy boy. How many of his films survive? How many of them are still seeable? All of them are available in one way or another on 
DVD or and film. And we're lucky this weekend we'll be able to see three of them, three great films, one on 35mm print. So it's going to be a beautiful print of... What are, what are they? So it, it's The Big Clock, then followed by Alias Nick Beale and Where Danger Lives. All of them film noirs, all of them fantastic examples of, of his talents as a storyteller, as a craftsman. Was he, was he well rev- reviewed, revered at the time? At the time, yes. The Big Clock did really well. That's why he was in such a powerful position in, at Paramount. Um, based upon that, he was offered the chance to direct The Great Gatsby. He, was he now? He was because he'd worked at that stage with Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd was huge at Paramount. We should remind the, the listener that there have been a great many interpretations of Gatsby. Of Gatsby. The least acceptable being Baz Luhrmann's, but that's a personal personal view. But Alan Ladd would have been a good Gatsby. Yes, and he was. Um, but interestingly, Farrah chose not to do the film and he chose instead to do this film that we're showing on the weekend, Alias Nick Beale, which if anything, um, if you like Noir Philip and you haven't seen it, it's wonderful. It's a Faustian tale. It fits right into Farrah's own sense of good versus bad. Ray Milan turns up again playing the suavest devil you've literally ever seen. It's full of brimstone and noir and, uh, and also um, Audrey Totter, who's just like a noir goddess. So He obviously had a high regard for Ray Milan. He pops up in a couple of them. Yes, I mean, Ray... Ray did some of his best work for Farrah. They got on very well. Ray Milan apparently was one of these people who could remember pages and pages and pages and pages of dialogue which suited John Farrah very well because he loved to try and uh, shoot these very long scenes, which he succeeded in doing. I should remind the listener that I'm talking to to director-producer Claude Gonzalez and to director-producer Franz Vandenberg. So how did you go about finding all the background on, on John or Jack? Because he rarely gave interviews as such. Yeah, he's, I mean, he was very difficult to find any information about. When we started, there were no archive, no interviews with him at all. It was part of the mystery of finding anything about him because even though we liked his films, we had to search out where we could find people that he'd worked with. We wrote to family members. We began to look far and wide. And it was very difficult because, he, as we sort of describe in the film, it's almost like he'd fallen through the cracks of film history. And part of our search, and maybe we should have called it a mystery, was to really show people what made him so fascinating, not only, as we've been saying, a great storyteller and a philanderer, but also a great filmmaker and and someone that had been forgotten by Hollywood. It's amazing how many significant Australian people working in film have fallen through the cracks. My favourite film is The Third Man, photographed by an Australian cinematographer, a masterpiece. No-one in Australia seems to know that. Mm. And no-one, until you blokes came along, knows a damn thing about Farrah. Well, it's like, um, again, when we started, Philip, we, uh, we were having trouble finding anybody who knew him, particularly here. Some people did uh, know him in America... Um, you'll see in the, in our documentary that we did interview a number of Australian uh, directors. Um, for example, Philip Noyce went to the national, you know, the Australian yeah. Film and Television School that you had a lot to do with. Farrow was never taught to them as uh, part of the curriculum. It should have been. 
Um, same with, I spoke with Gillian Armstrong. She had no idea about him. Bruce Beresford. Beresford did because, yeah. you know, Bruce is a, a film lover, as did, as was Ken Cameron and also Philippe Mora. So we had a mixture of people who were not only filmmakers but aficionados. Mia Farrow didn't want to be involved? Well, she, she had her own issues because we did ask and we did venture out and send many letters, but... I mean, that family's had a lot of difficulty and I think she shied away from taking part. We were very lucky to get his son, John Charles Farrow, and also interview all the cousins here in Australia. So we we, we did quite well in, in creating his story through those voices, but unfortunately, me and no. But we are talking about someone who's into the art of obfuscation as much as filmmaking. You know, he told so many different stories to... Uh, to different partners or to different uh, associates. His children um, all all have different versions of him as well. Um, they tended to, obviously there were seven of them, they all lived in a classic, again like a Hollywood movie, they lived in Beverly Hills and they had nannies and they had all this sort of thing. But the parents tended to be, you know, they tended to keep be at an arm's length. Maureen was, um, was very proud of the fact that she never made a dinner in her life. Um, she was far more off being beautiful and exotic and distant, and John was always working. I should point out in parenthesis that his grandson, the son of Mia Farrow, was Ronan Farrow, and he, of course, is the bloke who exposed the odious Harvey Weinstein. What becomes of Farrow? How does his life end? Well, basically, he works himself throughout the 40s and 50s to a point where he's recognised as a great director. But then with the turn of the 60s, with the introduction of the blockbuster, he tries to get into that and it doesn't quite work for him. He uh, begins a film called Around the World in 80 Days and he has a falling out with its producer, Michael Todd. Then he tries to and gets a great Who film. Who later married Elizabeth Taylor. That's right. <laughs> ah, trivial pursuit side. And then he uh, makes John Paul Paul Jones, and that is a medium film it, uh, in the sense that it, it, it's a blockbuster, but it doesn't do very well. And then, tragically, his son, his eldest son, dies in an aeroplane accident above the skies of Los Angeles, and that really breaks him. He has a stroke soon after that. It really hurts the family. They return from their European adventure making this film, and, and slowly his life starts to sort of break apart because Maureen decides to go back on the stage. OK, we've got to wind it up. The doco is already screened here in Sydney, in Canberra this weekend. Will we be able to see it elsewhere in Australia? Uh, yes, we're looking to maybe release it later on in the year, but uh, it's available on some streaming services at the moment. Thanks, chaps, co-directors and producers of John Farrow, Hollywood's Man in the Shadows, Claude Gonzalez and Franz Vandenberg. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.